God has been good to me is just to let me to come to Hume Lake. My name is Ed Uzinski, and uh, my wife Amy and I and our four kids live in Dayton, Ohio, and we work with a sports ministry called Athletes in Action for over 30 years. Now, we've worked with this sports ministry called Athletes in Action that brings the gospel and discipleship to college and professional athletes. And so we don't really have anything like Hume Lake in Dayton, Ohio. I don't know if you've ever been to that part of the country, but this kind of stuff's not out there. So I come in here, this is, this is my third year here, and uh, I'm still giddy about being here. I was talking with my friend Eric Thomas. He, he just showed up this morning. He's going to be speaking at Pondy this week. And uh, we go way back, and the first thing he said to me was, do you believe we still get to do this? You know, and I'm like, no, it's just so awesome to just be in the, in, in, in the presence of everything that's going on here, everything that John Bowl talked about. It's just amazing. So you might be coming in here with a bad attitude here this morning, and you need to change that because this is really cool to be here, Jordan. And how about this? My wife had to fly to Sacramento. She's not here yet. She's coming this afternoon, and she had to do a wedding there, and um, she had to get on a bus with junior high students. She's on her way here. What's that? Maybe four or five hours? So at least you're not doing that. Okay? Think about that if you're in a bad spot. Oh, so just to pull the curtain back a little bit on what I've been thinking about really for quite a while now. I, when, when I read nerdy books, I read social studies books. I love studying culture, American culture especially. And uh, one of the things that I've been paying a lot of attention to is just the effect that crowds are having on what happens in America. So, you know, you've got the, uh, the Antifa crowd, you've got the January 6th crowd, right? You've got the political differences in terms of crowds. You've got the Twitter mob crowd, right? Social media crowds. You've got these kind of groups of people that wind up having this huge influence or at least want to have a huge influence on how we think about things. What's right, what's wrong, what we should like, what we should hate, right? The crowd, crowds have a huge impact. They, they try to. And, you know, one of the, probably the most, I thought about this even as I was reading the Bible a lot in this last year, that one of the most overlooked or under-considered characters in the Bible is the crowds. I mean, if you go and do a study on this, and maybe some of you will now if you kind of hear where I'm going with this as an intro, over 170 times the word aklos shows up, which just means crowd, the crowd this, the crowds that, all across the scriptures. And then there's a bunch of other moments where there's just groups of people. They don't get called a crowd, but there's groups of people that are having a huge impact on the life of the prophets, the life of Jesus, the life of the, the church, the formation. You know, when the church was getting started, there's crowds that are trying to influence what's happening. So just off the top of my head, I thought about some of these. I was thinking, which ones am I going to put in front of us? I mean, one of the most infamous and worst situations was Pontius Pilate. And, and I think Pontius Pilate like, really wanted to let Jesus go. You know, he didn't have anything against him. He was impressed by him. But what happened? He came and stood in front of a mass of people who said, kill him. And he gave in to the crowd. Uh, Gamaliel. There's a guy named Gamaliel. He was, a, he was a Pharisee. In Acts chapter 5, you can learn about him. And as the church is starting to expand and the apostles are just causing a ruckus because they're going around and talking about Jesus, the Pharisees are like, I thought we shut this down already. Like, what's going on here? And they're starting to scheme. Do we put them in jail? Do we need to get them killed as well? 
And Gamaliel, one of the Pharisees, stands up to this crowd and says, yeah, I would leave him alone. Let's not do that. If it's not of God, it's going to fade away. And if it is, we probably don't want to get in the way of it. And they were able to keep going. You got from Acts 5 to Acts 28 because of him staying against the crowd. One more. There's a centurion in Acts 27. Paul's getting ready to be taken to Rome. And there's a, like over 200 people that are getting ready to get on this boat. And there's bad weather that's forecasted. And Paul says, listen, we shouldn't go. If we go, it's going to be really bad for us. And there's a crowd of people, the owner of the boat, and there's a captain, and there's a whole mess of soldiers, and they say, we got to get out of here. And the centurion listens to them. And guess what happens? They get their butts kicked. Bad. And it's bad, bad, bad weather for days. They're afraid they're going to lose their life. And then, and then guys are trying to jump off the boat, and Paul says, you know what, I wouldn't do that. I had a dream last night, and God said, stay on the boat, because you're going to get to Rome and everybody with you, but everybody has to stay on the boat. And this time, while well, guys were like, no, we're leaving. And this time, the centurion said, no, you're not. And he listened to Paul instead of the crowd. It's all over the place in the scriptures. And I had written this down to myself. Uh, you know, often, crowds often encourage us to do the thing we shouldn't. And they get in the way of us doing the thing that we should. We know about that. We know what that's like. I mean, throughout the Bible, there's these critical moments that get triggered either because someone listened to a crowd when they shouldn't have or because someone stood against the crowd when they should have. So what does that have to do with us this morning? What crowds are you vulnerable to? If you don't get anything else out of this, that's one of the questions. It would be a great lunch question. What, what crowds in your life are you vulnerable to? Maybe it's, it's, some, it's a group at school. Maybe it's, uh, you know, the teachers. When they get in the teacher's lounge, there's a particular group of teachers that, that you're, you're vulnerable to their opinions. Maybe it's a certain money class of people that when they talk, you feel particularly influenced by them or it's a particular political group or whatever. What crowds are you most vulnerable to? And one of the questions that I've been wrestling with for myself is does my vision of Jesus overcome the pull of the crowd? Do I have a clear enough vision, a compelling enough vision of Jesus in my mind? And this is where we're going to go in this text we're about to look at so that my vision of Jesus overcomes the pull of the crowds that I'm most vulnerable to, where I can consistently listen to him and what it is that he wants for me instead of giving in to the crowd that's not as concerned about that. Does the voice of the crowd consistently overwhelm my walk with Jesus? Because, see, it's, it's easy to believe in Jesus, um, but wind up being disciples or followers of various crowds. And that's where it gets dangerous, right? And I know, I'm not trying to trap you with that question. Here's the reality. We're all vulnerable to some crowd. That's why it's super relevant to us. None of us is completely immune. So let's just be conscious. Let's become conscious. Who is it that we're most vulnerable to listening to when we shouldn't? And do we see Jesus clear enough at this stage of our life, wherever you're at on your journey, such that what I know about him helps me to transcend whatever it is the crowd's trying to get me to do that I shouldn't. We're going to look at a character this morning. If you've got your Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 10. 
one of my favorite characters in the Bible. We're going to meet an unlikely man who stood up to a crowd in a way that God obviously thought was worth keeping for us 2,000 years later. So we'll just go verse by verse in Mark chapter 10, verse 46. It says, as they, as they came to Jericho, well, let's just stop there for a second. Jericho is not an insignificant city, and that's actually kind of important for where this whole thing is, is heading. It was, a, it was a rich, sophisticated city in the time of Jesus, super cool city. Uh, they had tons of water there. They had mild winters. King Herod wound up building a palace there, a winter palace, so he could go hang out there when winter came around because it was so nice. And so, you know, it, cities like that attract people. It attracts wealthy people. It attracts powerful people. The cool people want to go to Jericho to hang out. It's about 17 miles away from Jerusalem, and Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. And one of the last stops that he makes is Jericho. And it says, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Okay? So again, let's just stop here for a second. I mean, this is literally true that anywhere you open in your Bible, the central character in any text that you look at is always Jesus. It really does always make its way back to Jesus. He is the one that ultimately we most need to see and re-see so that we grow closer to him and we get a clear vision of who he is. But God intentionally leaves characters behind for us. I mean, did you ever think about that out of all the stories that, and John even said this, there's a thousand things that Jesus did that we didn't write down. Well, why did he pick the ones to write down that he did? Because there's characters that he wants us to align ourselves with and think about ourselves in light of, right? So we have two characters here. One is just this crowd. It says it's, it's a group of disciples, so people that actually had signed up to follow Jesus, and just a great crowd. Could you imagine? It's, it's an entourage is what it is. As Jesus is making his way through Jericho, he's got this entourage that forms around him made up of people that already follow him and people that just want to be around him. Think about what it would be like to be in Jesus, Jesus' entourage. I had a niece the other day that went to a Taylor Swift concert in Detroit. Y'all know people are killing themselves to get Taylor Swift tickets, right? It's almost impossible. So she was like crazy excited about it. In fact, the, I went home. You guys probably don't need to know this, but I'm going to give it to you. I went home for the first time uh, in over almost a year to, to where we went to hang out with our family. She skipped it because she wanted to go see Taylor Swift. Okay, I'm not bitter about that because I understood what it took to get the tickets. So it's hard enough to get into a concert like that, but what if, what if Brenna had actually gotten to be in Taylor Swift's entourage? What would that do? What would it do to you if you got to be around the, the cool person that everybody's here to hang out with? Jesus! Like he's, got, he's got some really great press that's going around about him. I know the religious guys don't like him, but this guy's been teaching his socks off. He heals people. He's doing things that you've got to show up for this. You've got to get a ticket to this. So that's the crowd that's forming around him. On the other hand, it says there's one guy, actually in other versions, 
uh, in Matthew's version, there's actually two guys who are sitting by the road, two blind guys who are sitting by the road. And so what it means to be a blind guy in a rich city is that you are in a, you're like a professional beggar. I mean, there is no social services back then, 2,000 years ago, to make sure that he's got his needs met and he's got, you know, a structure around him to help take care of him. Somehow he gets into the road every day and he's completely dependent on the people that are making their way through Jericho. Again, remember the kinds of people that are there to get his needs met. And here's the thing. He's, he's despised. And again, if you go do a study on, on beggars in New Testament time, the Romans despise that guys like Bartimaeus are laying in their streets. I mean, you know what this is, actually. I mean, he's the guy that's laying in your street. He, he's the guy with the tent on the sidewalk. How do you feel about them? If you're from a community or you drive through communities where you see guys like that, it's not usually a positive feeling that you have. Well, they were very intentional about despising him. The Jewish people that were around, they couldn't stand him either because they were really superstitious even when they looked at him and said he's blind. Something must have happened. You know this happened in John 9, right? The people were like, who sinned? He did somebody in his family line. He did something. There's something bad. There's some bad mojo on this guy where God has cursed him and taken his sight away and now he has to lay in the street. They don't like him being there. They don't like him being there. So, well, one of the other characters that Jesus meets in, in, uh, in Jericho is Zacchaeus. He's the other guy that gets named. Remember Zacchaeus? He's a tax collector. Remember, he's, he's totally hated for what he does. But Bartimaeus is hated for what he is. And that's like way worse, isn't it? Just despised. So he feels that all the time. He feels that from people all the time. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, and in fact, in Luke's version of this, Bartimaeus asks, what's going on? And the people respond, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So when he hears this, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Okay, the crowd, stay here just for a second. The crowd says, Jesus of Nazareth is here. It's like saying Ed from Ohio, okay? That doesn't really work because I'm not anybody, but it would be like a really famous person. There's a celebrity, right? You guys have heard about this Jesus of Nazareth. He's, he's a celebrity, that's come to visit us. Bartimaeus hears that. And this is so interesting. I so wish we could be here. It's part of the reason why I love this passage. Bartimaeus can't see anything. He hears them say, Jesus of Nazareth is here. And he just freaks out. He's like, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, son of David. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus. See, see, the crowd just acknowledged that he was a celebrity that came to their town. But Bartimaeus, in saying son of David, and this sounds like really complicated. I didn't understand this for the longest time. But by, by saying son of David, he's, he's conferring messianic promises on Jesus. He's recognizing he's the Messiah. 
Because if you go back and you look at what the prophets and, and, and everything that was foretold about how the Messiah was going to show up, he would come through the line of King David. It's why Matthew, if you go back and look at that long, long genealogy that you usually skip when you're doing your year through the Bible, it's actually there really, really on purpose for moments like this. It's to show from David on down, actually all the way back to Adam, but from David on down, this Jesus is the, he's the one. He's the one. This, we could just stop right here with this. Because there's this dividing line from this moment, from this moment with Bartimaeus up to the moment we live in right now. There's a dividing line between people who see Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus, son of David. You with me? The crowds, the people you go to school with, I don't know where you go to school, people you work with, okay? Everybody knows that Jesus was an important person. Still 2,000 years later, he's understood to have been an important person. He was a philosopher. He gave lots of good wisdom and tidbits to live by, okay? He was Jesus of Nazareth, a historical figure. But some people recognize that he was way more than that. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He, he's the one that comes to make all things right again. He's the one that God sends to set me free from my sins, right? All these things that are important to people that are thinking about these things. He's the son of David. So a question, I, I think about this, again, in, in being confronted by a text like this. How easy is it to proclaim him as Messiah, but then relate to him as Jesus of Nazareth? How easy is it to say that you believe in Jesus, but you don't come to him like he's really God? I don't come to him like he's really God. Somehow, and again, I don't even know how this happens. I feel like we could, we could just can't spend our time just talking about this. How does it happen that we have these moments where deep in our heart, we, we're moved. We, we, we sense that, that Jesus has done something. He, he is uh, he is the Savior. He's given me something I couldn't have gotten from anywhere else. And you feel different because of this walk that you begin with him, the walk that I begin with him. But along the way, it just starts to become rote. It just starts to become habit. It starts to uh, become cliche. And subtly, without even realizing it, subtly, we start to relate to him like he's just Jesus of Nazareth again. He becomes a sort of an imaginary Jesus. There was a, a guy named Matt Michelatis wrote a book called Imaginary. A guy that's making his way through Portland, Oregon, and he's meeting all these imaginary Jesuses. Y'all ever met Jesus in Portland? Yeah, Venice Beach. He shows up in different places, doesn't he? Imaginary Jesuses that he meets, perpetually angry Jesus, magic eight ball Jesus. He ran into King James Jesus, patriotic Jesus, hippie Jesus, CEO Jesus. As he was going through Portland, he met legalist Jesus, political power Jesus, free will Jesus, social outreach Jesus, denominational Jesus, Fox News Jesus. LGBTQ Jesus, fun grandpa Jesus, homeboy Jesus, genie in a bottle Jesus, 
and that's only about a third of them. And I remember when I read that book, I, I was, uh, everybody was talking, it was a super popular book maybe 15 years ago, and I got encouraged by the crowds to read it. And I was like bored and annoyed with it. You ever started reading a book that people told you you just had to read, and you finally read it, and you're like, ah. Oh. And I got to the end of it, and I was annoyed with it because he's just meeting all these different Jesuses. And then I just got hit with a ton of bricks. Because the whole point of the book was, maybe you're already sitting on it yourself, is how many different imaginary Jesuses am I turning to in my mind that, that are lower than the Jesus that's in the Bible? The, the Jesus that, again, is son of David and Messiah and all of these things that I knew at one time, but somehow I've just kind of let him become go through, I'm, just go through the motions, Jesus. It's a disturbing question, but I think it's a really important one to keep asking if our faith is going to continue to have life and energy and, and doesn't, become, doesn't become something where we just pray before our meals because we feel like we have to pray before our meals. Doesn't become, well, we always, every time we show up as Christians, we're going to sing three worship songs because that's what we do. I think we should pray before our meals. I think it's really important to sing worship songs. But only, I'll speak for myself, only if my heart is really engaged in the thanksgiving for what it is I'm praying for. Only if I've done the work to come in and I'm, I'm saying, God, make this real to me again. Help these words that I'm singing not to just become words that I sing, but words that actually mean something and change me. Would you, would you do that to me again, son of David? Would you help me get rid of all the imaginary Jesuses that I have unknowingly grabbed onto so that I can get back to you again? It's what ends up happening is that he starts serving our interests instead of us serving his when we do that. And it's, it's interesting that the man without eyesight is actually the one who's got the most insight at this point in calling out to him as son of David. Okay, look back at the text. It says in verse 48, many, as Bartimaeus is yelling, son of David, have mercy on me, it says many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Let's go back and just stop for a second again. Why? This is a real question. The crowd tells him to shut up. The entourage tells him, be quiet, blind dude. Stop. Be, be silent. Why would the crowd do that? It's a real question. I actually would like some feedback on that quickly. Think, put yourself in that crowd. Again, let's get personal. If you were in the entourage... Why might you be a person that's saying, shut up, blind dude? Say it again. They think he's not important. Yeah? I mean, we already kind of established that, didn't we? They, they don't think he's important at all. It's a blind dude laying in the street. We're embarrassed by him. We don't even want him here. 
And now he's making a ruckus. What else? He's not important. Why else? I don't want him to jeopardize my spot in the entourage. Because once you get in the entourage, okay, which you're like totally amazed that you're there, you start to get a little territorial. Yeah? Why else? Anybody else sitting on an answer? He's a distraction. Why do you say that? Okay. He's pulling the focus to himself and not to Jesus. That would be the best of possibilities, that they're concerned that he's been pulling attention away from Jesus. If I was in the entourage and feeling this way, I'd be concerned that he's pulling attention away from me. This is my parade as much as it is Jesus's at this point, isn't it? If you're in the in crowd and you're in the entourage, can I throw a word out to you? I think it's because, again, there's a whole bunch of different reasons. The tech doesn't really tell us, but we're humans and we can kind of get in touch with it, can't we? I think it's because the, this crowd is entitled. Even the different things that we just said are just manifestations of being entitled. What does it mean to be entitled? The dictionary says it's believing yourself to be inherently deserving of privileges or special treatments. That's what it means to be entitled. They deserve, they've earned it. We just want what we've got coming to us now. Regardless of how they wound up in that, in that parade in the first place, entitlement can creep in on you. It's good to occasionally do an entitlement assessment on yourself. I mean, I find myself, because I think about these things, doing this regularly. It's a good idea to ask yourself, am I, am I allowing myself to be Come entitled. There's a demanding kind of entitlement. That's usually what ends up happening once you've acquired some kind of a, a status. You've got a title at work. You're a starter on the sports team. Um, you're a speaker. You get to come and be the speaker guy at things like this. And you, you get this sort of demanding mentality. You don't, you, know, you don't even realize that it's coming. You start out maybe really encouraged and really excited that you've got this status. But slowly over time, or maybe quickly over time, you start to actually believe that you deserve it. And so you say, oh, I'll come speak, Jason, but I need you to pay me twice as much as you normally pay other people because I don't get on a plane unless I make X amount. And when I get there, I don't do camp food anymore. Oh, gosh. I'm going to need to be catered, okay? <laughs> So you get, I saw, I know you guys have a helicopter that comes in when people get sick. I'm going to need, okay? Um, and we're going to need two different places to live in because I'm going to need my own study space and my family's going to need their own place, okay, in one of your nicer places, okay? I mean, we laugh at that. I work, I, sometimes I'm Jason and I, in my job, I'm bringing in people to speak. I've had those interactions with people. That's just, you know, nice guy. Great guy, great teacher, entitled. Sometimes it's demanding. Or again, you're on a sports team and now you're gonna act in a certain kind of way towards the other kids that aren't starters. Or you get some kind of special privilege in your, in your school because you've, you've done something grade-wise and so now you start to look down on everybody that sits around you in some kind of way. But then there's just sort of taken for granted entitlement that happens. That's when you wake up in the morning and you take for granted that your heart will still be beating. 
and you don't even acknowledge it. You take for granted that I can walk into the bathroom on my own. See, not everybody can do that this morning. You take for granted that when you go in there to use the bathroom that everything's going to work the way it's supposed to. That didn't happen for everybody this morning. Uh, You expect that you'll be able to get a drink of water, right? You just expect that you're going to have clean water to drink, don't you? Either from the sink or, my goodness, we have bottles of water. We expect we are entitled to have clean water. And I just went to Guatemala six months ago. I got to do this and went and spent time with people. They've never seen clean water, this, this town that we went to. They have to make their own to do anything. Spent nine years myself in a home. I shouldn't even do this because I'm, I'm not going to get into this, but I'll just tell you. We lived in this really nice neighborhood right outside of town, about a mile outside of town that's on well water. For nine years... The well was inconsistent, and you never knew from day to day whether or not we were going to have water or not. I got three hours of stories to tell you about that. But see, what it did to me, and I remember thinking to myself, my gosh, I'm a grown man. I'm an American. I'm living in a pretty nice neighborhood where we live. I deserve water. I'm going all over town with this big tank on the back of a truck getting water for us. Screaming at the kids, right? I told you I wasn't going to go down that path. I'm not going to. <laughs> but the point is, when you, when you have stuff like that taken away, you realize, well, that's not an entitlement. That, that's a bonus that we've all taken for granted, but you can get really entitled about it. I have never, you guys, I'm 55 years old. I had never flown in a, on first class on a plane. I fly all the time. Never had flown in first class. Okay? I'm always in the back with everybody else. And I usually purposely kind of intentionally will sit all the way back by the bathroom, almost to thumb my nose at everybody that's in the front of the plane. But secretly, I've always wanted to be up closer to the front of the plane because they got leg room up there. I know that I see them giving them snacks before we're even on the plane. They're getting snacks, right? And so this year, and I'm not going to pay any extra money to get to sit up front. It's just the way I'm, I'm, my dad didn't raise me that way. I don't do that. So I sit in the back. This year I got to sit in first class four times. That was awesome. And the fourth time, this just happened, actually just happened a month ago. Uh, When I got on the plane, they had already let everybody put their bags up. So I had to take my bag all the way back to row 12. And when I sat down to eat, I'm like, okay, whatever. That's a pain, but okay. I sat down and I was looking forward to some sea salt flavored Corn nuts. I mean, I was really looking forward to that. And they didn't have any sea salt flavored corn nuts. And I'm, and I'm really frustrated about that. And I start, I'm sitting there thinking, they got this whole other tray of all these other things, but they don't have those. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I, I hope the dude that didn't order enough is facing some kind of accountability for this. Right, I'm really going through my mind. I'm just thinking, this isn't right. Like, somebody dropped the ball on this. I get to sit here, like, once in a while. I want the corn nuts. Then we land. Then we land. And, and I had to wait until every last soul got off the plane. Because I couldn't get back to get my bag in row 12. And I'm sitting there as people are going by me. And see, they think, that's what happens. They thought I was a worker. Like, people are saying goodbye to me. 
they, they thought I was waiting to go back and clean the plane. I'm just like, have a great day, good day. And inside, I'm kind of burning, okay, because one of these people are the ones that put their bag above where mine's supposed to be. And I'm getting angry, okay, listen. And as I'm sitting there, because I got 20 minutes now to sit, I think, oh, now you're an entitled idiot. Just like that. You with me? Like it just sneaks up on you. And you don't even know that it's happening to you. You gotta do an inventory of the ways that you become entitled along the way. Because that's what's happening to the crowd. Now, Bartimaeus, he screams out all the more, it says. He, he, he yells more to him. They're telling him to be quiet. Now, why might he have been quiet? If you're Bartimaeus, why might you be quiet? Huh? Yeah, you can't see him. And, and, and the crowd's telling you to be quiet. I'm, I'm a little scared of the crowd. You don't know what the crowd's going to do to you if you don't be quiet, right? You've been in those situations where, where there's this, you know, they're trying to shout you down. And Bartimaeus, what I love about him is it says all the more, he's like, Jesus! Like, he doesn't care. Isn't that a beautiful, that's why I love this passage. Isn't that beautiful? As we've gone through life and you feel the weight maybe of always kind of being influenced by the crowd, isn't it super freeing to see a guy that's like, I don't care what you say or think. I've been laying here for however many years. You guys have never done anything to help what I most need done in my life. But everything I've heard about Jesus, the son of David, says that I'm way more concerned about missing this moment than I am whatever the consequences are going to be because I don't be quiet. And I want to be that kind of guy, don't you? I want to be that kind of guy that doesn't care what the crowd thinks. And so what's, what's the word for Bartimaeus? How about broken? Not just in his body. Of course, there's something he can't see. But it's broken in his spirit. He knows that he needs, he needs mercy. I need you to give me what I don't deserve, Jesus. Would you, would you, would you see me? I desperately need you. Brokenness. I heard a woman named Nancy Lee DeMoss. It's almost 25 years ago now. She did a talk on brokenness. Let's just do this real quick as we're getting ready to land. I want to read you some of what she wrote because this has stuck with me. This is what I come back and think about when I'm being a jerk on the front of the plane. Brokenness is a lifestyle of agreeing with God about the true condition of my heart and life as he sees it. Brokenness does not mean, as some people think, having a sad, gloomy, downcast countenance, never smiling or laughing. It doesn't mean always being morbidly introspective. Nor can it be equated with deeply emotional experiences. It's possible to shed buckets full of tears without ever experiencing a moment of brokenness. Further, brokenness is not the same thing as being deeply hurt by tragic circumstances or being blind like Bartimaeus was. A person may have experienced many deep hurts and tragedies but never been broken. Brokenness is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's an act of the will. And it's not primarily a one-time experience or crisis. Listen to this. Though there may be a crisis point in the process of brokenness, it's an ongoing, continual lifestyle. It's a posture. 
How can we know if our hearts are proud or broken? Let me just read a couple more of these. See if you can relate to these. And I'm gonna insert entitled instead of proud, where she has proud written. Entitled people focus on the failures of others. They have a critical fault-finding spirit. They look at everyone else's faults with a microscope, but their own with a telescope. By contrast, broken people are overwhelmed with a sense of their own spiritual need. Therefore, they can esteem all others better than themselves. Entitled people have to prove they're right, but broken people are willing to yield the right to be right. Entitled people are protective of their time, their rights, their reputation, but broken people have yielded their rights. Entitled people want to be served and to be a success, but broken people desire to serve others and make them a success. Entitled people have a drive to be recognized and appreciated. They get wounded when others are promoted and they're overlooked. But broken people have a sense of their own unworthiness and are thrilled that God would use them at all. They rejoice when others are lifted up. Feeling it yet? Entitled people are quick to take offense, but broken people are quick to forgive and overlook offenses. That article has always disturbed me. Because I want to keep thinking, or I get even to something like this, I'd listen to a message like this and say, okay, I'm, I, I know I'm broken. I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to stay in that state. But then I don't, you know? I literally just had this happen two weeks ago that I, again, I don't have time to do this right now, but I'm, I've been working on this project for two years with this guy at work, and I've had a really good attitude about it. And a couple weeks ago, some things were happening where he was getting recognized for the work and I wasn't. And I just was struggling inside. And it's normal to be hurt by stuff like that. I'm not saying that that's all bad. But it, it took me a minute to get back to, dude, you teach on this. It's not about you. The work isn't about you. And it's not. Like, I have to give this sermon to myself. The work is not about you. Your role is actually to help him get put on a pedestal. Completely different mentality than... You didn't have me on the call. Why wasn't I on the call? I didn't get included in that nice email you got. So you step into the third week, you guys that are working here. And all the fun and everything of the first week is starting to fade off. People are sick in the second week. And now you're in the third week. Now you know who's doing what and not doing what. And, right? Like This is where this starts to become important. How did Bartimaeus know about Jesus? I'm going to say this and then we'll stop. Bartimaeus couldn't read. Bartimaeus is hearing. He, he hears the book of the law somehow. He hears the work of the prophets. He, he has them inside of him. And he's heard about Jesus. He hears the stories about Jesus. And it's enough for him to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Like it does something different inside of him. You guys, we can never get tired of revisiting the truth about who Jesus is. Again, you have to check yourself to not let that, the, the stories of Jesus to become so cliche that it doesn't have an opportunity to penetrate your heart and bring you back to acknowledging who you are before God, who I am before God. What Bartimaeus was able to do was he could see Jesus for who he was. 
and he saw himself for who he was. And it caused him in that moment to not care what anybody else thought, but to say, Jesus, have mercy on me. And you know what, Bartimaeus, a week later, now that he was, he, well, what happens? He, Jesus comes to him and says, what do you want? Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And he threw off his cloak and he sprang up and he came to Jesus and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Which is a really good question because just before this, he had asked James and John that and James and John said, we want to sit at the right hand and the left hand, Jesus. So it's a pretty legitimate question. And Bartimaeus says, I just want to have my sight back. And Jesus says, you got your sight back. Oh, your, your faith has sozo you. Your faith has saved you. Because it wasn't just what Jesus could do, but it was who Jesus was that Bartimaeus was saying, I need you. He saw Jesus for who he was. He saw himself for who he was. And he surrendered himself to Jesus in a fresh way. He wanted to serve him, unlike James and John, who wanted to be served. And it's a daily thing. Because Bartimaeus, he jumped into that crowd. He became part of the followers. And of course, we, kept, we know his name 2,000 years later, probably because he stayed on the path. But Bartimaeus might have become an idiot the very next week if he didn't keep rehearsing to himself his own condition, the one who saved him, and what it means to follow him in a fresh way every day. Let's pray. So that's a lot to process, Lord. Would you help us wherever people are at in this room this morning? Maybe there's some people here that don't even know you this morning, and this is somewhat foreign language. Would you, would you grab a hold of their heart to want to follow up and find out more about you? Son of David, Messiah, what do these things mean that, it, that actually has relevance to us in 2023? For those of us that have been walking with you for any amount of time, would you continue to help us to see you? Every day we just get, we get clogged by stuff, by our own stuff that gets in the way and the stuff of other people that gets in the way. Help us to see you. And help us not to be afraid to be honest about seeing ourselves and what's really going on inside of us so we can get cleansed again. We can get a fresh start. Your mercies are new every day. Help us to step into those and live genuine lives, serving and following you and being a blessing to those people that are around us, even on this property this week. Help us to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen.